0: CliffCentral.com
1: Good afternoon, you're tuned to the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com and I'm your host, Kingsley Kipuri. In the 60s and 70s, the United Kingdom forced thousands of people from the Chagos Islands into exile. They've been fighting to return ever since. Despite the blatant and horrifying effects of this kind of colonialism, few people know about this story and the Chagosians have unfortunately been fighting a losing battle to return home. But recently they found a powerful ally. Human rights lawyer and activist Amal Clooney is backing a new court challenge for Chagosians to return to their land. Here's a replay of an in-depth show we did exploring this issue. That'll give you everything you need to know about the Chagos Islands. Thanks for listening. And here we are, back this Tuesday, start of the week, back of a short week. I hope you're all doing okay. Remember, you can tweet us Mm -hmm. at DM DMShowsAda, and I think Greg has also set up the the Instagram account, so if you want to engage with us over there.
2: That's on Daily Maverick, so you can check it out there.
1: Absolutely. We are very, you know, technologically focused. We're just, we're like the the aunt who's on social media five years too late and asking if you got her book. Anyway, time to jump into this week's show. Um... In preparing this, um, we've been doing a lot of thinking and reflection and reading just about colonialism and just the devastating effect that it had on, on the African continent. I'm um, thinking back to redrawn boundaries, displaced people, and just absolutely no regard for people's history and culture and, and basic human life. I'm um, thinking back to the separated families, separated culture, the lost history, you know, burned and destroyed civilizations that we, you know, may never get back. Um and when we think back on this, it's often based on this idea that it, that 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 colonialism and that original form, sort of rape and pillage form, is is over. Um. So it's really really crazy when we hear that 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 some people since the fifties and sixties, when a lot of this, um actually through to the seventies, when a lot of this was was ending its original form, and a lot of countries were receiving their independence. You know, so your your Ghanas, your Kenyas, and so on getting independence some people just never got that and we're hearing that as recently as 2016 people have never been able to return home to go back to their land to claim their their right to their place and their land and the place where their descendants before them sort of lived and existed so we'll talk a bit more about this on the line we have the president in exile alan vinkatassen can you hear me alan
3: Yes, I can hear you. Okay.
1: Now, Alan, I'd just love to talk about where you're originally from. Where is your family originally from?
3: Yes, I was born in uh, Diego Garcia, which is in the British Indian Ocean territory, on a world map that would be uh, opposite Africa and near the Seychelles. My family also, uh, they were uh, born there, born and bred.
1: Alan, you don't live there now. Um, what, what, what happened? Why, why is your family no longer living there?
3: A, when I was uh, only uh, one year old, a, all of us, uh, so the people of the Chegos Islands, that includes the main island, Diego Garcia, Peros Banos, and uh, Solomon Island, a, we were exiled. Uh, by the UK government uh, to make way for a. US military base and this happened between 1965 and
1: 1973 Alan, what did that removal process actually look like? was there some kind of notice period was it you know what, 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 what did the actual removal of people who were living and inhabiting those islands? what did that look like?
3: Uh, there was no notice at all. Uh, it's only uh, one morning, the Manager of the plantation there on Diego Garcia he told my father that the mm-hmm. island is now closed, and that all of you will have to go
1: and and I mean where were people moved to where did i mean this is you know thousands and thousands of people where did Where did people move to
3: uh, there was about uh, twelve hundred of us and uh, we were shipped to The island of Mauritius uh, then uh, became independent in 1968 and uh, also we were sent to the Seychelles which was close to uh, Diego Garcia. So sent on ship like animals with uh, no provision at all when we reach uh, the capital of Mauritius in Port Louis and we were just uh, dumped on the wharf there and uh, we stayed there several weeks uh, in the open air without no housing, no health, and no food provision at all and we have to find our own way in that uh, city uh, uh, begging for food, asking for food and uh, try to get helps from uh, people
2: Alan, can you tell us what was that like?
3: A, that was a culture shock for us it was... Like hell, really, because uh, we were so um, peaceful. We were like in paradise in our homeland, and when we reach a country mm. where we've never been before, or even if uh, some of us were were happened to be there on holiday. Day uh, uh, before it was uh, chaotic uh, with the with, with the fact that it's a new kind of life mm-hmm. and there was no provision waiting for us. So at least if you are trying to dump some people, you know, onto a a, a remote island, at least you need to be able to um, to give them the proper housing and proper proper care that they need on day one. Mm-hmm. So there was no such thing at all, and it was done in the most callous way and the most secret way. Uh, um, no one knew about it.
2: And at that stage, do you remember how your parents your parents felt, how they were trying to survive, and and how did they feel about this exile and eviction?
3: Uh, my grandfather tried to resist it uh, on the island itself, but people were so fearful, so afraid that uh, gas bombs were going to be uh, exploded there, Uh, They were so afraid seeing uh, their pets, their dogs were killed in front of them, so they uh, thought that they might, um, uh, in a certain way, uh, have the same fate as their pets, Mm. and uh, they preferred to embark on on the ship uh, to Mauritius. And uh, life was so so tough in Mauritius, and they had to go about and try to get jobs, you know, to fend for to fend for their families, and uh, also trying to make a, a living uh, in a, in a place in a country where they were considered uh, second-class citizens, and uh, it, it was very very hard.
1: I mean, Alan, just as you talk about families, was there any effort to try and keep, you know? Either perhaps different tribes or different family units together to make sure that when they were moved on, they were moved to the same, to the same sort of relocation place. Uh,
3: in in many cases, uh, this was not done properly. Uh, I get you my own example. My mom was sent to the Seychelles, and my dad uh, was sent to to Mauritius, and I ended up being raised uh, by my grandparents. And uh, I recently uh, knew, came to know about somebody, uh, a lady who met uh, his uh, other sisters uh, in the UK and never met uh, them since, um, since they were deported. So this shows, you know, how this was not uh, a plan in a human way. And uh, we were kind of, uh, you know, uh, people that were expendables really.
2: So your family was completely torn apart. By this by this exile separation and eviction
3: definitely uh, I came to know i came to uh meet my mother when i was 17 years old so after after 17 years then only i met my mom in the seashells you know and um there was no no love there i, I couldn't um uh, figure out uh things and uh She was like stranger to me, you know, and uh, because we've never bonded, I didn't get the opportunity to live as any other children did. And certainly uh, our rights as children at that time was was not respected at all.
1: I mean, Alan, you describing your personal story, and, and you mentioned another person you know this happened to. But this this wasn't unique. Um, how many people would you say were experienced this? Or how many people were original, originally on the Chagos Islands when this happened?
3: Yeah, I believe there there are hundreds of cases uh, this way, and uh, also you know we the there, there were about twelve hundred of us. Uh, who were evicted from our homeland uh, from all these uh, islands together with Diego Garcia. So, um, you know, when you talk about hundreds of people being separated from families, uh, you then get a a community, uh, you know, families that are broken and uh, which are very difficult to mend Mm -hmm. in a certain way um, that um, for them to uh, progress and to go into life as uh, as normal as uh, other people so um, it's it's uh, it's grave what happened
1: to us. Alan, I wish you could, well, I wish, but if you could just tell us, you know, a bit about what happened next. I mean, you've you've described people being moved to the Seychelles, to Mauritius, to other islands. If you could just trace some of the general movements in general of where people have ended up, where they are now, the descendants and the, and some of the perhaps surviving members of the people who were forcibly removed from your home.
3: Uh, yes, so we were in uh, in Mauritius for uh, for lots of years, and uh, only uh, when there was a change in the law of the overseas territories of the UK uh, mm-hmm. concerning the right of abode of British subjects uh, that were in the overseas territories, uh, then we were allowed under a new law, uh, the British Overseas Territories Act 2002. Uh, to have a right of abode in the UK Uh, uh, because uh, in history, uh, you know, there were different classes of uh, British citizenship uh, at that time and these um, kind of citizenship, uh, you know, uh, with these kinds of citizenship, you did not, we did not have any right of abode in the UK. So we were removed from our homeland, which was a British uh, dependent territories uh, uh, country at that time sent into an independent country of Mauritius, but we were barred from coming to the UK because our our class of citizenship at that time uh, precluded us. So uh, in the change in 2002, when the change happened, uh, I decided to embark on, uh, on an adventure to come to the U.K. with my people uh, for a new life because we were in abject poverty in, in Mauritius. Life was very, very uh, blur, very dark. And uh, uh, we suffered lots of kinds of prejudice, you know. And uh, so I decided, you know, um, with uh, the help of God, by faith, uh, I did uh, take uh, 19 people and we came over to the U.K. And... Uh, to start a new life, and then I organized several groups uh, of uh, fifty and one hundred and twenty in so this happened in a period of thing, uh, starting from two thousand and two to two thousand and four and we embarked and came to Mauritius and started a new life uh, bring our family over and um, getting jobs and uh, now we 've got about three thousand of us here in um, in the u k uh, we live near Gatwick in a, in a place known as uh, Crowley, and Crowley has been our our town uh, these past 13 years.
2: Now, Alan, you talked about the difficulties um, you face living in Mauritius. When when you were forced, or when Chagossians were forced out of their homeland, were they offered any sort of compensation or assistance at resettlement?
3: My grandfather uh, sued the British government in 1975, and uh, in 1982, uh, a conservative uh, government in the UK decided to uh, solve the matter and uh, asked my uh, grandfather to remove his case before the High Court in London so that they can pay a compensation uh, to the people. And um, my my grandfather was very reluctant to remove the case, uh, but uh, because of pressure and the uh, abject poverty that people uh, they were in, uh, my grandfather finally had uh, no other alternative than to remove the case. Then uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain paid uh, three million pounds sterling uh, with a with uh, signatories. Uh, to accept uh, this uh, sum of money uh, as a full and final settlement of all claim, past, present and future. And uh, we got uh, about a £1,000 sterling in today's value, uh, which is uh, like peanuts. And uh, people at that time didn't realise that this money was not enough. Uh, despite uh, my grandfather explained it to them, but I could understand certainly because people were so poor. They were so indebted. Uh, many people didn't even have food, uh, you know, to put on their table. It was very very hard, and um, and and people had to to sign these signatories form before they can get their compensation, and uh, the deal was done, and uh, there is uh, no other compensation paid afterward. And that's why I made a decision to come to the u k to uh, to start a new life and, and to work here and to raise the standard of living of my people and that was the only alternative that i had and um, i'm I'm glad i took i took that decision
2: but the issue is far from over
3: it is it is far from over that's true and uh, a couple A couple of years ago, I negotiated uh, a pilot resettlement with the conservative government, The new government that came into power here in the UK. And um, the uh, then minister, uh, Mr. Mark uh, Simmons, agreed uh, to do a feasibility study. Um, because I wanted uh, my people to be able to return to their homeland, uh, even to Diego Garcia, where there is a military base, because around the globe there are other U.S. bases where a civilian population is living and working Mm. uh, on on, on the base. So I see no reason why, in in, in our case, uh, this uh, can be denied. So uh, the government agreed. uh, So a feasibility study was done by the firm KPMG, which is internationally well known, and uh, they came up with a report saying that there there should be and there is no barrier to resettlement, no legal and no practical barrier to resettlement uh, in in our homeland. So now we await uh, for a governmental uh, decision uh, to be taken uh, by the prime minister and his cabinet uh, really, and uh, we, we, we are still waiting. It's taking us some time, and perhaps the uh, in and out EU referendum is causing a delay in, in, in mm-hmm. our case, in our process. Uh, but uh, we, we are hopeful.
1: I mean, Alan, I really commend you for still being hopeful despite you know everything going on. Um, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, you speak very passionately about the people you came over with, and you, and you describe you know my people um, as you as you speak about your you know leadership role. And I'm, and I'm curious what the general feelings are of of, of the people you represent. Um, is there anger towards the UK? Is there hatred? Is there resentment? Or what what would you describe as sort of the emotional general feeling of the people you represent?
3: I think there is, uh, there is quite a bitterness there. And because, uh, you know, one can uh, empathize that uh, in uh, so many years uh, living in exile and certainly uh, for the suffering and all the consequences of, of exile, you know, which continues uh, in the life of people. And these kinds of hurts, they are in your soul and uh, they can't go in in one day or in in years. And and in some cases may never be able to to be removed from these people's heart. Uh, I would say anger is there, but at the same time, uh, as for me and and, and I believe uh, many other people in my community, we we have uh, forgiven uh, this act of uh, barbarism against us, against our people, and I think um, forgiveness is, has got the, the power really uh, to uh, to allow things to change and uh, with good diplomacy and a good um, a continue we need to continue to um, to talk, you know open uh, the talk with the uk government and leave that line of uh, of talks of communication open always you know and uh, uh, working together. For this to to, to reality to, to become a reality, uh, the world has changed and it co- is continuing to to change so I believe in my community there are people who are still angry about it, but there are people also who are who, are, who have forgiven uh, the country for for this wrong uh, that was done and I think the our success will will uh, will be uh, you know uh, through forgiveness. And uh, cooperation and partnership working, that's, that's, uh, thats these are keys. And and I think that's a way forward.
1: Alan, I'm so sorry for what has happened to you and, and you know, to all the people, you know, that you represent. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And, you know, we really wish you the best of luck on, on your process to finally returning home. Thank you very much. Fantastic. That was us talking to President in Exile of the Chagosian Islands, Alan Venkatasen, who was just describing, you know, his sort of leadership role in trying to navigate the complicated emotional journey, political journey, sort of legislative hurdles that, that still stand in between, you know, thousands of people and them finally returning home. Um, Greg, we were talking a bit before the show and we're just thinking how crazy it was that, that during the a sort of Cold War era that that deals like this were being struck.
2: No, I think so. We haven't quite got into what exactly happened yet. And essentially, what happened was that the Chagos Islands were British territories, and in I think it was in 1966, yeah. the deal was struck between when the United States wanted to have a military base established on Diego Garcia, which is one of the biggest islands in in the in the region. Mm. Um, and we have to remember this at the time, it was going through the Cold War where, where both the Soviet Union and the US were fighting for supremacy in different regions yeah. sort of around the world. And so Great Britain entered into a deal with the US where essentially, uh, they allowed the United States to establish a military base on Diego Garcia for the paltry amount of one dollar a year, at least, at least for one dollar a year. And in return, um, the Brits got a huge discount on uh, nuclear technology. I think it was about fourteen million dollar discount mm. um, to establish some of their own sort of nuclear technology in the uk and at the time and and since documents have been released um, going back to to how sort of the locals um, the Chagossians were described mm. in that era, you could see that the sort of these Western superpowers had absolutely no regard for their humanity or their rights. I think they called them Tarzans. They called them Man Fridays. And then essentially what happened was there was a, I think like like we heard from Alan just now, there was this sort of process of eviction and it happened over a number of years. Some people were sort of forcefully removed, but many were sort of... um. I don't know how you'd say, I guess through, through stages. Um, so things.
1: I know for some people, they would sort of let you leave thinking you were living voluntarily Mm -hmm. on holiday or for business. Perhaps
2: you go to Mauritius for health concerns. Yeah, which
1: wasn't the strangest thing in the world and, but they
2: just wouldn't let you back in. That's right. You try to get back home Mm -hmm. and they say no. Okay. So you have to go back to Mauritius. Uh, for some other people, I think like, like Alan mentioned, he mentioned a plantation. I think there was quite a large coconut plantation on one of the islands Mm -hmm. and, um, what the British did is, while while they were sort of of the through this going through this process of staged evictions, is the British bought the the largest coconut plantation, and then they closed it down, and so sort of people lost their jobs and and also sort of an income and food supply was cut off. Um, there's stories of other other sort of food shortages and different other ways that locals were sort of forced forced out of their homeland and essentially sent into exiles, most often in the seashells or, or Mauritius. Um, and since the the U.S. Is still has that military base on Diego Garcia, and until this year, and this is, I think, we should mention one of the key reasons that we're talking about this issue today, is that it's 50 years, the deal is up. Um, and so one of the questions is now, what's Britain going to do with this land that it still it still owns, it still has, unlike many, many other places that we know in Africa hmm. and around the world where nations have been able to win their independence. Britain still is in charge of the Chagos Islands. Yeah, I mean I in mean, talking a, a
1: bit about this before, it was just interesting talking to you know, as we did our research, talking to some of the support organizations that are out there in the UK. And these are sort of just regular British people who've heard about the cause and 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 through different ways have stumbled into it and are and are really trying to take take up the cause of the Chagosians who have you know who have lim- who have limited influence in the UK. You know, when you're foreign, you're a small group, you're minority. Your your influence can be quite limited politically and you know socioeconomically. So it's been really encouraging to see a small group of people who have come together. Um like the Chagos support organisation in the UK, and, and you know you've chatted with them over the past week, and seeing them take up that cause and trying to capitalise around this opportunity that you said comes up this year, the deal that was struck. Uh, in 1966 comes up, like you mentioned, December of this year. So it's quite a unique opportunity to really ramp up the political pressure and hopefully they can be for some justice for the Chagossians this year.
2: And there has been sort of increased pressure on this issue. So I think maybe about a decade ago, hardly anybody knew about what was going on in this in, in this sort of travesty. But... There's been, there's been a number of things happening, particularly in the UK, sort of within, within parliament and politics, as well as within the courts and some of these groups, as you mentioned, rallying around the Chagossians and both, both from, from the community and, and people supporting them, who are really trying to, number one, put this uh, issue on the public agenda. Number two, uh, challenging Challenging parliament to, to do the right thing. And essentially they want to be returned and allowed access back to their homeland with, with sort of compensation and assistance to start up new lives there. And, and number three through the courts. There's sort of a summa, simultaneous process of all three going on that has made, made it possible, particularly this year. And there's, there's, I think, quite an optimism that after 50 years, something might change. Um, for the sort of an optimism for one of Britain's most brutal acts of the 20th century, for the country, for the, for the UK to atone for what they've done, even if that will never, um, address the pain and hardship that someone like Alan has gone through.
1: I mean, I, I can't, I can't put it any better than that. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting because not interesting, but frustrating because there's two sides. One is a very personal and emotional journey. Um, yeah. And really it's un- it's unthinkable that this is happening in 2016. And the second half is really something that's, that's so hard and cold. It's a political process. It's a legislative process. And like all you know inquiries and we know all about this in south africa is when the second you have commissions of inquiry and feasibility studies and sort of that endless political and judicial process i mean it's it takes forever and the second is an election cycle and elections it's either you know it gets pushed up and said oh, we'll deal with this after elections and if the government changes and if you switch from a labor government to a conservative government they have a different stance on this so it's quite you know depressing to to have people asking for you know basic justice um and to be heard and to and to be you know compensated for for what they've been through, and you've kind of been told you know just hang on hang on for a bit um I know you spoke with somebody who's in the process who's part of the parliamentary group, and you know we'll, we'll be able to play that interview pretty soon. Is there any more context you think we need to give before we, we sort of jump
2: into that um I think, I think it's just important to remember, like I said, that there are different people working on this issue and there's different processes happening right now. But I think, as, as, um, the interview will show, uh, it's a long process and it's not, not going to be easy.
1: Okay. So we're just about to play an interview that we sort of recorded with David Snoxell, uh, who is the chair of the all party parliamentary group, who's part of the sort of complicated web of, Legislative and parliamentary procedures that we mentioned—that's going on right now.
2: Um, So yes, just to start, um, can you tell me when when, when you were High Commissioner, um, how did you get involved, and how did you first learn about issues of the in the Chagos Islands, and how did it sort of play out during your tenure?
0: Yes. Well, I was, before I became High Commissioner to Mauritius, in the mid-90s, uh, when I was Deputy Head of Southern African Department in the Foreign Office, I was also the Deputy Commissioner to the British Indian Ocean Territory, so that's in the mid-90s, and I got familiar with some of the issues then, though I hasten to add, I was only very, very dimly aware of the, the what had happened to the Shagosians, simply. Uh, by then, uh, it was really going to the courts, all that litigation, which uh, brought it out into the full public view. And then uh, I was ambassador in West Africa, and uh, my last posting was High Commissioner to Mauritius. Now, obviously, Mauritius, uh, where the Shagosians were exiled to, or the large majority of them were, were sent to, uh, was some um, hugely involved with Shagos, uh, not least because uh, they claimed to have sovereignty over the islands um, which um, is the case in fact but um, so I used to meet the shagosian leaders and uh, in um, shortly after I arrived there in um, November two 2- The High Court um, gave its uh, judgment that uh, and restored the right of return to the Chagosians for the Outer Islands, not to Diego Garcia, since it was um, a military base. Uh, And um, it was me that uh, conveyed that um, to the Chagosians at the time, and I had many meetings. With them over the course of the next four years, it was clearly a fractious relationship at times. Simply because I was uh, representing the UK, not my own personal views, which um, sometimes can be different from the views of the government, which she goes in saw me then uh, as uh, possibly well, the enemy. I would be going a bit too strong, but anyway, not on their side. In point of fact, I was very much on their side. I very much agreed that um, uh, they should be allowed to return to their homeland. Shall I carry on? <laughs> yes, all right. Well, now, uh, for-
2: no, no. So, so, so on that, you've written quite a bit on this, and it seems to be quite a, a personal issue for you. Why, why do you seem to care about this issue so much? What, what makes you passionate about? Because it?
0: Because this is one of the most egregious uh breaches of fundamental human rights uh that Britain has committed in the 20th century and uh I my background is human rights I did 5 years of human rights in Geneva uh and I believe very strongly that uh, Britain should put this right and um this was a relic of the cold war and uh, that there was no real reason why they shouldn't or those who wanted to uh resettle be allowed to go back so i'm going to fight that um until we win and uh, i think we made a fast amount of progress which we can come on to, but I'm very much committed to the Shigazian cause, um, and uh, both personally and uh, intellectually.
2: Now you're the chairperson on the All Party Parliamentary Group. Can you tell us, working on this issue, can you tell us a little bit about what that group does and and who's involved?
0: Yes. I'm not the chairman. The chairman always has to be a, a politician. The it's is Andrew Rossindale, a Conservative MP. Before that, it was Jeremy Corbyn for the previous seven years. And uh, I sat with Jeremy through uh, 50-odd meetings. We now have 54th. So I am the coordinator of the group, and it's in a voluntary capacity. It's my uh, job really to bring the whole thing together and to give the groups uh, a sense of direction, politicians know what they want to do. They know where they want to get to, but very often uh, they don't know how to get there, especially when you're dealing with the British government and the bureaucracy. Now, the group itself is uh, a surprisingly strong um, and high-profile group. As I said, we've had 54 million. Meetings already in um, seven years, and uh, it's made up of all the political parties in parliament. This is, uh, so far as I know, this is the only, what we call them, APPG, all-party parliamentary group, that um, has complete representation across the political spectrum from far left to far right, and we've got some quite notable politicians politicians on there. Of course, they can't be in government at the time, um, but we've had up to four former uh, foreign ministers in the FCO. We've still got three of them uh, who are members, and that itself sends a, a signal. Those three actually dealt with Shagos issues uh, uh, One during my time, and uh, they clearly feel um, strongly that, um, that w- what has happened in the past has been wrong, and Britain should put it right, and that it sullies Britain's reputation for the promotion of human rights. It's hypocrisy, really, that we should allow this to continue in our own backyard. Um, two British citizens, Chagosians are British citizens, um, and yet be preaching into the world about what they should be doing on human rights and i think that's that's something that the members of the group uh, whatever party they belong to wherever they are on the political spectrum agree about and feel feel for now the purpose of the group is uh, clearly stated it is to help bring about a res Solution of the issues concerning the future of the Shagos Islanders and of the Shagos Islands. The the future of the Shagos Islands is very much wrapped up with the sovereignty, sovereignty dispute with Mauritius, but perhaps we won't come on to that unless you're interested in it. <laughs> well, t- tell me, what has this group achieved? Sorry, so, over, you said, seven years, 54 meetings with some very high-profile members, what has this group achieved? I think it's huge Raise raise awareness of the issues uh... in parliament and in the public uh... and in the media and uh... we won't know what it's achieved until we've achieved the end and then i will be able to say that it had made a huge contribution the end result is um... to allow the Shigozians to return to their homeland and uh... that objective is worked towards by other other groups um, in society, other parliamentarians and so on. I think the, the group has already made, however, a, a huge contribution towards moving this forward. When the group was founded in um, uh, in 2008 uh, there was complete ignorance about the Shagos Islands, it seemed, pretty much across the board. There were a few parliamentarians who understood it. And Jeremy Corbyn was the one uh, who knew it most and he was elected chairman And um, it, it, but little by little um, the group have been able to show that the arguments advanced by the bureaucracy I mean the foreign office such as defense and intelligence and security uh, conservation treaty obligations to the United States uh, um, maritime law and so on, um, were all unfounded arguments. These are arguments that officials clutch to. They've inherited them. uh, In my time doing this job, Um, I have seen uh, uh, 12 different ministers dealing with the issue. So ministers and officials come and go, and they inherit the arguments of their predecessors, and they deploy them without any real understanding of whether those arguments are still legitimate and still relevant. I think whether we've got to easy is, is to show that all the arguments including feasibility, it is feasible we were always told it was not feasible because of an earlier study that has since been discredited um, it has shown that these arguments no longer apply, there are really no arguments left as to why the British government should not now restore the right of return and begin to facilitate um, a resettlement, now this has been great it helped in the last few days because um, uh, President Obama was here and uh, the Prime Minister raised it with Obama. This was the first time that a British Prime Minister and the US President had actually discussed together um, the uh, resettlement of the Chagosians and, and the future of Bayard. This is all linked to the agreement that the UK... And U.S. have over the islands um, which was um, uh, agreed in 1966 which comes up for renewal at the end of this year for a further 20 years. Now it's all linked in. What the parliamentary group is saying is that uh, the Americans are partly responsible for what happened, not exclusively, and therefore, for the agreement to be renewed, a condition should be that they should help to pay for it and uh, help to facilitate a a resettlement. Now, the reaction. Oh, I I should say that uh, um, President Obama then later met Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, also the honorary president of our group, raise the issues with um, Obama, and all I know is that Obama listened sympathetically and raised no objections. Now, if he raised no objections, it means that there really are no solid objections or difficulties on the part of the US. But over the last 15 years, if you'd listened to the Foreign Office, you would have been told many times that the Americans oppose resettlement. I've always said, I don't think that's the case, I don't think it's true, um, and now I think this meeting at the highest level um, this is uh, the furthest we've ever got with it um, uh, demonstrates clearly that um, there are no real difficulties re- with resettlement cost is certainly one it's one being deployed most at the moment but um it- it's not that expensive, and uh, there aren't going to be that many Shugosians who want to return. Many simply want the right to return restored so that they can visit when they want to visit their homeland. And I think that's the common denominator of all Shugosian groups, wherever they are in the world. But um, the ones who are likely to want to return are those who live in Mauritius. So um, Mauritius is very much part of uh, the way forward. Yes, any other questions? <laughs> Uh, um, yes. Well, now I think then we ought to go on to what 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 holds in the future. We we are very close to the denouement. Um I would expect um, a uh, decision by the government on before the summer recess, possibly even before the end of June. I also expect um, a decision by the Supreme Court on the parallel litigation that is going on uh, by the end of June. Now, uh, I think, looking at the government's position at the moment, there will be um, an offer of some kind of uh, deal or compromise with the Chagosis. Naturally, Parliament wants um, uh, full resettlement to be restored. It may be something less that the British government offer. It may be... um, full resettlement. Now, if it's something less, for example, it could be visits to the islands, um, assistance uh, where they live in Mauritius and Seychelles in the UK, and so on, of a monetary kind, or even compensation. This will not bring this campaign to an end. The Chagosians are absolutely determined um, that uh, those who want to return should be allowed to do so. So it will go on the campaign. And the British government Full well, so I'm inclined to think they're going to move more towards um, agreeing to a pilot resettlement on Diego Garcia, where the base is. The Americans made it clear that they don't have um, a security problem, or rather, if they do, they can deal with it. After all, peoples around the world live close, cheek by jowl, to American bases, so it's not a new um, problem. Um, so... I think that's where that may come out. I may be wrong. I've been wrong in the past. Um, Now, on the Supreme Court um, decision, the litigation has been going since uh, 1998. So that's getting on for 18 years of litigation. And the Shugosians won in the high court and they won in the appeal court. They lost in the House of Lords, which was the predecessor of the Supreme Court. Court in 2008 by a simple um, uh, two, thre- uh, three-two majority verdict, and and um, they have got it back, or their lawyers have got it back to the to the Supreme Court, who are reviewing the House of Lords' uh, judgment. And um, I would have thought that they are more likely to um, give a favourable judgment for the Shagozins than an unfavorable one because we are now able to show that the judgment of the Lords in 2008 was based on a a discredited feasibility study which concluded resettlement was not feasible. Now since then, in 2014, the government decided to have a new feasibility study and that uh, by KPMG and KPMG concluded that um, there were no um, insuperable obstacles to resettlement and certainly no legal ones. So I would have thought the Supreme Court would, would be uh, cognizant of that and aware of um, that as well. However, you know, as we've all um, judgment, uh the is tied down by what it's allowed to um, review and it's simply reviewing whether the um, orders in council of 2004 which um, stopped the Shigotian as returning um, are lawful or not that's really the crux of it I'm hopeful anyway
2: It seems however David that there's there, at the moment, are many good reasons, or almost only good reasons, for allow to allow the Chagossians to return to their homeland. But what politically seems to be making this so slow? What is holding
0: this up? What is holding it up at the moment is um, a Supreme Court judgment, which we're awaiting, and um, the decision by the government on the KPMG report these things are bound to be slow because um, the government have held its face against resettlement for so very long and officialdom officialdom is behind it all but uh, I'm strongly of the view that officials today uh, do now believe that uh, resettlement should be allowed Um, and um, there's been a lot of deception over the years um, by government uh, as to the real nature of the issues and they've been castigated by the courts for that and that has gone on and then you had the marine protected area declared by David Miliband in 2010 which was a further obstacle. Obstacles have been raised and there's a certain degree of, of officialdom um, protecting itself uh, here and not because um, as soon as it becomes clear that um, they do uh, now agree that resettlement is correct and right uh, then it brings into question um what is uh, really 15 years of opposition to resettlement and as to why and the motivation I've hinted at one of the motivations and that is simply the revolving door. Officials come and go ministers come and go so they, they just pick up the brief where the last officials left off and they maintain it without questioning and um, I don't think that's Machiavellian that's just the nature of um, civil services and it probably happens all around the world but I would be the first one to agree this has been an inordinately long time and it has led led to the fact that the Shugosians now have have been in exile for longer than the biblical Babylonian exile which is an incredible thought Um, and um, yes well uh, after it's all over I may be willing to go into uh, why this took so long uh, in further writings.
2: David thank you very much for speaking to us today and we hope to speak to you once it is all over which hopefully is soon When it comes to foreign
0: investment, what is and what isn't allowed? What happens to your overseas money when you die? With the changes regarding overseas funds and how SARS treats you if you're a South African taxpayer, St. James Global has the answers for you. They've been doing this for years and focus on preserving and protecting offshore wealth, as well as creating succession planning structures. Make sure your worldwide assets pass on into the future. Go to stjamesglobal.com for more information. That's stjamesglobal.com, your independent wealth managers.
2: St. James
4: Global is an authorized financial services provider.
0: Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.
1: Back with us on the Daily Maverick Show as we talk about the you know the plight of the Chagosian people, you know, forced from their homes and and have been living in exile. Next, we speak to Chair of the UK Chagos Support Organisation, Stefan Donnelly. Stefan, how are you? Hello, Stefan. Can you hear us? Hello. Hi. Okay, perfect. I mean, now, Stefan, we spent the past sort of forty minutes or so talking about the you know the plight of the Chagosian people since their forced removal. And hearing about the constant sort of legislative and political sort of challenges that have stood in their way or stood in the way of them being able to return home and have some sense of justice. Now, just thinking back from now all the way back to the 1960s, I mean, working on this for so long, I mean, don't you, doesn't this drive you crazy, this issue?
4: Um, Sorry, could you repeat the question?
1: I'm, I was just curious about your sort of personal feelings about just how long it's taken for these people to get some sense of justice and some, and some form of of compensation for how much has been taken from them. And what are your personal feelings on this matter?
4: Um, I think, like most people, um, you know, not really, um uh, from the UK myself, I just think it's a it's distressful really that. This was done to them in very simple terms. You know, they were forcibly removed from the land they were born in, the land the parents were born in, and many generations before that in a lot of cases. And that's not something you expect to happen in the 20th century. It's certainly not something you expect your own government to do, which is what happened to Gossians. And there have been many opportunities over the years um, to allow them to return or to offer our forms of justice and of compensation, i say. And all of those really have been missed. There's been high court projects which uh, suggest that they should be allowed to go back. There's been resettlement studies that says they can go back. Um, so, yeah, there's no reason why uh, the UK, the US, or the governments involved shouldn't start a resettlement program no, uh, there's still massive demand for it within the community, and yeah, my, my own personal view is just it's a disgrace, and you know, just being on the nation I'm from's reputation that this hasn't been resolved so far. I just say half a century now.
1: And Stefan, um, we've heard that the, the the decision to you know whether to continue the lease between the UK and the US on on the Chagos Islands comes up at the end of this year. What are the key sort of decisions that you're looking to uh, between now and that period that you think will really be the sort of the decisive um, elements of how this turns out?
4: Yeah. Um, from our point of view, the key thing is that if that agreement is extended, it should be on the condition that there is mutual U.S.-U.K. support for discussing returns and islands whether that is in terms of finance actually helping to restart a settlement there, restart society there, or whether it is U.S. agreement on return to Gossians using some of the military bases facilities, very uh, practical things like uh, Wi-Fi and some of the infrastructure there. Um, so I think those are just some of the practical decisions that need to be made. But the fundamental principle, I think, has to be that If this agreement is to be extended, and remember the original agreement is what led to the expulsion, if this is to be extended, it should be conditional on Trussians, largely UK citizens, being allowed to return to the land they were born in, the land their families were born in.
1: And Stefan, just finally, for all of us listening and following the issue around the world, um, what message would you like to leave us with about all this?
4: Um, I would, the message for yeah, everyone around the world, all your listeners, is just to try and do what you can, stand up for the to trust people. It's, um, it's a small group of people, and has been very brave, very resilient in campaigning for this over the years, but it's a small group of people that needs international support. It's an international issue. It involves the UK, involves the US, it involves Mauritius, Australia, countries where they live now, so we need people around the world saying that we won't stand for their continued exile. Um, we'll do anything we can to back them. And you can find out uh, more information about it on our website, which is uk or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll try and keep you up to date about what's going on in the campaign over the next couple of months, which will be absolutely vital in what happens uh, in the next year or so.
1: Stefan, thank you so much for talking to us, and please keep up the excellent
4: work. Thank you very much. Bye.
1: There you have it. Uh, Big, big decision at the end of the year that could hopefully result in some kind of justice and compensation for people who, you know, still haven't had the, 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 the freedom and the basic freedoms that the rest of us are enjoying today, which is quite potent, I suppose, for us in South Africa just after Freedom Day. As you've heard, there's a sort of call to action via the chair, via the Chagos support organization. So please, if you can, you know, go over to there, follow them on Twitter and see if there's any way you can be a part of that. And I love if there was a way we could have this high on our, you know, agenda and on the global agenda to have some kind of justice for this. A big thank you for everyone who spoke to us. and. And an important shout out to Simon Allison who sort of started us down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what was going on and excellent researching and, and making connections from my co-host Greg Nicholson for, for making all this happen. Thank you so much for chatting to us this, this afternoon. Please share the podcast far and wide and please do what you can in your sphere of influence to see if there's some way we can help these people. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Same time, same place.
4: Cliffcentral.com.